Today's episode is presented by Vare. Vare was founded with the goal of building an affordable everyday wristwatch that blends tasteful design with extreme durability and functionality. Vare returns a sense of dignity to the affordable wristwatches and are built to last. Vare is a true American watch company specializing both quartz and automatic watches. Vare is offering our listeners 15% off if you use the code PODGO15, P-O-D-G-O-1-5. Go to varewatches.com, V-A-E-R watches.com to learn more and get your new timepiece today. Your host, Greg Rotersheimer, is now a designated financial coach. If your financial situation is causing you stress because of debt, budgeting, or saving for retirement, and anything in between, contact me to discuss how I can coach you to financial success. Email me at greg at suburbanfolk.com or call me at 804-592-1871 for a 15-minute free consultation to get started with your plan. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but at that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm Greg Rodersheimer, your host. This week, we're going to dive back into the world of education. If you missed episode 49, go back and listen to my guest, Catherine Haynes, who is a member of my local community school board. We talk about what led to their decision to start the year completely virtually and what challenges need to be overcome in order to get back into the classroom. A person that listened to that episode is Rebecca Holmes, and she is my guest today. She's the CEO of the Colorado Education Initiative, serving visionary schools and districts in Colorado and neighboring states. She's a former associate state education commissioner and teacher, and she aims to provide parents with a greater sense of agency in their child's education. We're going to talk about steps that parents can take to get the most out of their child's virtual education, as well as things that the schools can do to not only be more fluid for this year, but ways to make the education system more effective in the future. Rebecca, I really appreciate you taking the time to join the show today. Do you want to go ahead and kick us off by talking about your background and how you created the Colorado Education Initiative? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. So I have spent a little over two decades in and around education. I tried to leave briefly for the private sector and came back. I started my career as a middle school teacher, um, which what we say about seventh and eighth graders is you either love them or you hate them. And those are kind of my people. But very quickly was more intrigued and troubled by a lot of the sort of systemic issues around my classroom. So went on to work on a lot of systemic issues led a system of schools, then played a role in my state's state education agency as associate commissioner for the state. And now I've spent about four years leading a what we call a third-party intermediary. It's a mouthful. But CEI, the Colorado Education Initiative, was founded to have a special relationship with state government. And we work with about a third of the school districts in our state who are really trying to advance cutting edge work. Sometimes we're a little bit of an R&D arm to those districts. And then we have similar organizations to ours across the country in about six states. And we all put our heads together in trying to really advance the K-12 system, 
work on national and local policy issues, but really thinking about how do we rebuild an education system that just makes a lot more sense for the modern world that we know young people will go into. Talk to me about timeframes for the creation of the company. Of course, we're going to spend a lot of time on what's going on right now. And just like everything that's been affected by COVID, it's taken certain issues and amped them up tenfold, it seems like. So what was your time frame for recognizing this need? And then what I'm wondering is how much time was between then and what we're now facing? Yeah. So we were founded as a nonprofit about 12 years ago. And what's fascinating in your question has a lot to do with demand for change in K-12. So we sometimes felt like, gosh, we're really pushing this boulder up a hill trying to have people imagine a radically different way to do school. But, you know, we all know the K-12 system we grew up in. And so we often were running into systems where we had visionary leaders, visionary teachers, but public will, public perception kind of tends to push K-12 back to a sense of nostalgia or parents who say, "Ah, it was good enough for me. Why should we really change it? Um, or maybe just don't want their own kids to feel like guinea pigs. They would rather have something that feels known and familiar. And what 2020 has done has just rapidly sped up by necessity, people imagining school looking very, very different. Now, we haven't had a long history in the narrowly defined online learning space, um, but we are suddenly learning a whole lot, just like every teacher and parent in, in the country and really across the world, about online learning, blended learning, flipped classrooms, all kinds of ways to rethink learning so that kids can really still advance and maybe advance in some ways that we didn't see coming in the face of this disrupted year. Beyond the obvious of virtual school, what other items come to mind as being particularly antiquated with the school system? We're spending a lot of time rethinking the teaching profession. You know, talk about a big workforce that's being disrupted. We used to think sort of a teacher is a teacher is a teacher. And there are so many activities that go into teaching. You might be great at classroom management. You might be great at delivering and performing content. Or you might be great at like assessment creation, lesson creation, connecting with kids who are really hard to serve. Um, And I think what we're going to see out of this is people, and this will take some time, but people really start to interrogate all the roles that teachers play and create a lot more specialization inside that field. So that's really disrupted. And then the other major thing that any parent listening to this probably feels a pain point around is childcare. And this tough debate about, um, you know, I know you've talked about this, this tough debate about what's the role of the school in creating the stability that our social fabric needs so that families can have two working parents. And that's completely been turned upside down this year. Let's dive into that just a little bit more and to recap even our conversation before our recording here. I pointed out in our episode 49 where we had a guest from my local school board talking about people relying on teachers as childcare. And I get that certainly, as you just stated, we're potentially asking teachers, school administrators to be doing too much. But if we boil it down, it's predictability versus non-predictability. I don't think any parent, if asked directly, 
would say they expect their teacher to be a babysitter, but they do expect that the school is open and closed from the time that they're used to. So if that's disrupted, it's going to, of course, disrupt what they do for their nine to five, and they're going to have to figure out other options. What has been your perspective on that debate, if you will, between parents, teachers, and school administrators? You know, I think you got it spot on. We can know that teachers are not babysitters, and we can still say that schools provide a critical child care function. And somehow we've gotten caught up in not being able to separate those two things. I'll tell you here, trying to support innovative solutions and schools and districts that are trying to provide, you know, be responsive and provide some kind of continuity of care. I have learned more about child care licensing regulations than I ever thought I would need to know. And it is a space where the regulations are for such good reasons. We're trying to make sure we know kids are safe, but it is really inhibiting innovation. And I think if we can get through that a little bit, we'll, we're going to see some interesting emergence there in people saying, look, there haven't been a lot of solutions for childcare. If my school isn't open, I got to spend the money to hire a nanny or I got to rely on the one or two large scale camps or childcare solutions, boys and girls clubs, what have you. We're seeing kind of a cottage industry pop up of a lot of different providers saying, well, you know, I used to be a summer camp, but I think if I partnered with this science provider, we could do something interesting for 20 kids at a time. So if we can figure out the regulatory burden of this, that's where we're going to see a lot of innovation is thinking differently about community solutions for care. What does the economic picture look like in this situation? The obvious comparison here is public school is paid for by taxes and houses kids for a certain period of the day. As of now, there's different programs, and I'm sure there's probably certain help that people can get if they do qualify for certain need. But in the innovation side of that is the idea that these new providers would somehow fall under something that would be uh, paid for by taxes or some other system? You know, it's going to differ locality to locality. A number of municipalities do have some kind of, you know, lights on after school um, program where either through philanthropy or in some cases public dollars, they've been paying for after school provi um, provision and they, it's just not quite as obvious because it's not a big ticket item like schools. There's also federal programming um, that funds some of those programs that that may end up expanded. And then to your point, this is really an issue where there's deep concerns about gaps between families that can pay and families that can't. That's a serious issue right now. It was before COVID. It certainly is now. Let's move that into the current virtual models. Again, you stated that schools like it or not in a lot of the country are having to figure out what virtual school looks like. I'm imagining, depending on the age group, depending on the locality, the success rate is a very wide range. And of course, having students that have certain means to get online, to have reliable equipment is also something to be considered. What other challenges have you become aware of as everybody's trying to pivot so quickly? I think it's worth saying that what we experienced in the spring was not high quality virtual learning. It was emergency learning. And 
in places where schools were able to do really thoughtful planning this summer, we're already seeing, you know, our schools out here open a little earlier. So we're in week three. We're seeing much better uh, virtual learning and hybrid learning now than we did in the spring, which absolutely parents should expect that. And if it looks like it looked in March and April, I, I would say we should be really concerned. The point you make about age ranges, though, is really critical. So I argue all the time that we don't drive enough independence and agency anywhere in the K-12 system, but particularly with our oldest students. And this is an enormous opportunity for families and young people to say, look, if you're not yet independent at driving your learning and you're 14, 15, 16, this is the time to solve that problem. Versus, you know, in my house, I've got a five-year-old and virtual kindergarten is just, that is a heroic effort on the behalf of this wonderful kindergarten teacher that I'm watching every morning. Um, It's not developmentally appropriate to have five, six, and seven-year-olds on screens. And I spend a lot of time talking to people about how to push a kid to the edge of their independence in that age range. But it doesn't look the same as a a 14, 15, or 16-year-old. I've been very clear in what my decision-making process has been with my kindergartner. Heck, that's a little odd to say. I've been saying rising kindergartner, but school has started. So he's officially (laughs) a kindergartner. And that's why we looked for alternatives to our public school that was starting virtually because heroic effort is a great way to describe the challenge that the kindergarten teachers and probably up through, I'm imagining, second, third grade have in front of them. But that's also a point well taken for the older kids in driving what they want to be learning and how their learning occurs. I'm envisioning a connection between student loan debt and maybe kids that never even figured it out and went to college just because that was the thing they were supposed to do and still never really learned what they wanted to do and how they should go about forming the career that they wanted. Do you see a similar connection? Uh, Oh, gosh, this is a a topic I get really fired up about. So I have never met a young person that doesn't have some passion area. Now, it may be something that their parents don't think is particularly lucrative or interesting or academic enough. But if you can scaffold around this, and this is what great teachers do, and I actually think parents can learn how to do this too. If you can take that thing that the young person is interested in and and teach them how to drive their own learning on that topic, that is probably the most valuable thing people could have done this spring and summer. And you can save this school year by still doing it because it doesn't matter if, you know, (laughs) in our case, in our house, it might be, you know, Nintendo video games. But if you can figure out how do you go research more about that? How do you learn who created that? How do you learn the income of the person that created that? You know, you're teaching these learning skills. You're just taking something kids are passionate about, but you're teaching research and self-agency inside of that. And then they get to apply that to everything else they do. I have to tell a quick anecdote. Uh, I actually taught a class in my senior year of college. And if I'm being honest, I had no business teaching a class. I was not pursuing a teaching degree. I was not really supposed to be in this class, but they needed somebody to teach communications, which was my undergrad. So I'm literally in front of a class of sophomore, junior, senior, high school age kids with no lesson plan, no idea what I'm going to do and just have to get through that 40 minute period. So what I ended up doing was bringing my band's CD 
and basically dissected it from a communication standpoint and said, here's graphic design from your CD. Here is audio video when you talk about creating music. And if we had a video here, we would have something like that. So (laughs) I think I, even at that age, had a little bit of that perspective in mind to connect the dots of you're not just learning and memorizing facts. Here's how it might actually apply to you. And of course, what I was trying to do was connect it maybe to a passion (laughs) that the kids had. That's brilliant. It was probably very successful. And, you know, in the information age, it's so much less about content. It's not that content doesn't matter, but it's so much less about content than it is about knowing how do I find the information I want? How do I make connections that other people haven't seen yet? And we lean a lot into teaching models that that help young people do that. And then if you know how to do that around one kind of content, you can usually figure it out around other things. Yeah, I think so, for sure. And connecting it to their interests hopefully will set them on the path where you're not constantly pushing the students to learn the next thing or pick up the next thing. They're going to be motivated to want to figure out uh, what gets them in the path for whatever their passion happens to be. And before we leave the topic of the current virtual setup, what do you think the risks are right now as the school year continues in these hybrid models or continues in the virtual? Is there anything that we should really be concerned about socially or otherwise that let's say we're in January and schools haven't gotten any closer to face to face. What do you think those concerns would be? Yeah. So I take calls all the time by parents who I would say have a little bit of a misdirected worry. And it goes back to this idea of content. They're so worried. Oh my gosh, my kid's going to fall behind in geometry because that's what they're learning this year. And and honestly, if you have a kid who who's well behind or has learning issues, yes, that's probably a well-placed concern. The thing I'm much more worried about, particularly to your point, if this goes on till January, is that when young people are alone producing and consuming content one-on-one versus in a collaborative environment, we are missing a huge opportunity for their one of their most future-ready skills, which is collaboration. Learning is supposed to be done in a social setting um, for reasons that have to do with brain science and how we make meaning of things. And so I have been helping families think a lot about how do you have a young person find a learning buddy and produce a project together so that we have to go back and forth and say, huh, that didn't work out the way I wanted it to. And you own this part and we've got to negotiate. How do we want our final product to look together versus everything kids are doing right now being independent one-on-one? So that kind of collaborative learning is a big area of concern for me. And then we are also concerned about social emotional learning wellness. It's not good for kids to be as isolated as they've been in some settings and thinking about ways we run a a number of networks where schools think differently about how they build relationships with kids, thinking about ways that that can be done virtually too, so that young people still feel like they have a number of positive relationships, both with peers and adults right now. Because I feel like nearly any parent is going to agree that too much social media or just too much screen time in general is a detriment at any age any instance and so on. And being virtual like this probably makes that risk even more because not only are you probably having kids on social media, if not more, at least as much as they already were. Plus there's the screen time of 
doing virtual and that would probably also affect their communications as well as the collaboration like you talked about. Yeah. And we've taken away a lot of the adults that a young person would have interaction with and talk about putting a lot of pressure on the parent, right? Like my kids don't want me to be the adult that they talk to about everything. That's why they have teachers and coaches and pastors. So another thing I've given parents a a tip to think about is, you know, that silly adage that it takes a village really is true. So is there an aunt, a coach, a spiritual leader, anybody who could visit once a week in a socially distanced way or say, I'm going to call every Tuesday at 10 o'clock and we're going to step away from the screen and just talk on the phone because it's not, it's too much pressure on parents. And there's a reason that, that emerging adolescents have lots of adults in their life. They want to have different kinds of conversations with different kinds of adults. And we're, we're taking on a ton of stress right now as parents, if we're trying to do all that by ourselves. Let's say a worst case scenario is a single parent or uh, both parents are working and let's say they live out of state from any of their other closer connections. Do you have just a general recommendation for how they should go about building that um, adult network that their kids have to rely on? Yeah. I mean, obviously right now it's this strange world where it's going to depend on how comfortable people are with, with stretching their social distance boundaries. Right. But if you've got a neighbor and you think you've got fairly similar parenting styles and you can say, Hey, how about you take Saturdays and I take Sundays? Right. Or it can be distanced. I've got nephews in another state and I'm just making sure I call probably two or three times as often as I would have otherwise. I think we've just got to strengthen the fabric of our social networks right now as much as we can in part for our kids, but also frankly, like I said, just for parents, like every parent I know is at a nine out of 10 on a stress meter this year. And we've got to find ways to make sure we've got networks of support too. Yeah. Maybe even as a little bit of a counter to the concept of teachers not having to be everything to everyone at this point, parents would probably argue that's what's being asked of them is being everything to everyone. So there's certainly a push pull going on between the teacher perspective and the parent perspective. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and nobody feels like the other is necessarily holding up their end of the bargain right now. We're seeing um, one of the, one of the behaviors that I just think is, is really troubling is schools are so used to having a little bit of a sense of control over kids, right? Like you have to show up, you have to wear this thing, you have to stay these hours. And we're seeing these really troubling virtual discipline policies get implemented. I saw one yesterday that said all kids will wear shoes while they are in virtual learning. And I thought, wow, my kids would have been suspended. I don't think they've worn shoes since March, except to go hiking now and then. You know, that's a ridiculous thing. And it just comes from this, this sense of like, wow, we've lost control over having young people in seats. And so we're seeking ways to to control them, it doesn't create a positive relationship between schools and families in this unusual year at all. So we're encouraging people to rethink which battles they're fighting with kids and families right now, too. It brings to mind a point that I've talked about on the show a couple times, comparing what we expect adults to do compared to what we're asking kids to do. And let's be honest, for us remote workers, 
you don't have shoes on all day long when you're <laughs> on a WebEx or a Google Meets or whatever you're, or Zoom, whatever you're using for your meetings. I, I will raise my hand and say, I bought a brand new pair of Crocs as soon as I knew I was going to be home for a certain period of time. So, right. Why would you make that some sort of a mandate for kids when we're not even expecting the adults that are around them to be able to do that? So that does seem to be a little bit of a strange one. I don't suppose you have any other examples like that because I hadn't heard anything like that before. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a whole debate raging in in education circles right now about whether you should require kids to have their videos on all the time. And I think about this, you know, I'm an employer, too. I've got a team of about 25 people. And we set a norm that, you know, on most days for most things, please have your video on. But are there times where someone just doesn't and I don't as their employer assume the worst, right? I just assume like, I don't know, maybe your kids are doing something crazy in the background. But schools are really, really, I think, going over the top to require videos on all the time in ways that young people are not responding particularly well to. So that one's becoming quite a debate as well. And then the other is around having a quiet place to work. And I just think maybe school's not understanding the reality of what's happening in people's homes all the time. So I know a, a number of kids who got in a little bit of trouble because their quiet workspace was on the bed. And all of a sudden there was a virtual policy. You can't be in class, in virtual class from on your bed. Well, if you've got two working adults working from home and two or three kids, like in many houses, where else are you going to find a quiet space to take that call? So it's just these moments where I think, you know, schools are, are doing the best they can, but leaning a little too much into this kind of compliance and control because they've lost so much of it in the virtual environment. And maybe some comparison to other industries. Uh, my first thought when you mentioned that is goes back to the economics of it. It also could be that a student's living in a house that's just not that big uh, as compared to somebody else that might have more means and has extra space to be able to go to. So you certainly don't want to single out somebody if that's the case of what is going on. And I would also echo what you're saying with the video being on. I'll raise my hand and say when I'm in a meeting, I get a little paranoid staring at myself and I'm not a teenager anymore. So I can't imagine a teenage me having to see myself on a screen wondering what all of my classmates are thinking at the same time. So a little bit of privacy there, I think, would uh, be a good thing and and certainly would go a long way. Maybe not all the time uh, because you want to make sure they're paying attention. Great teachers have so many other ways to know that kids are paying attention, right? Say to a kid who doesn't want to have their video on, totally got it. Please make sure you're extra active in the chat. Or can you come back, you know, five minutes after class and just spend two or three minutes with me telling me what you got out of the lesson, right? There's plenty of ways to check for engagement that don't require you, to your point, to ask a awkward 15-year-old to like stare at their pimples and braces all day long. <laughs> that would just be miserable. <laughs> well, of course, we've talked a little bit about the teachers and the challenges that they have in front of them. What should be their main goals, both in the current virtual model and once they get into hybrid and into full-time, and then I know this is a long question, but expand that into what the initial goals were that you were talking about before COVID hit uh, so that they can be more specialized and focus on their specific tasks. 
Yeah. I mean, imagine what our current school system was built for, right? I think it's helpful to start there. It was built for a time when most of us were going to go work in an industrial setting, when 10 to 20% of us were going to get to be managers. You know, the American high school was designed to have a large dropout rate of 20 to 30%. And guess what? In most places, that's the dropout rate we have. The reason we have bells in many cases in schools was to get people ready for a factory line that totally doesn't exist anymore. And at the same time, education has been sort of the one industry or one of the only industries that's been really um, protected from 21st century modernization. And going back to my opening comments, right, some of that is parents' fault that we all have this nostalgia and we don't necessarily want things to change. You know, talk to a superintendent who's tried to cut a trigonometry requirement in favor of a data and stats class, which actually our economic and employment data would say is a good thing, they get confronted with parents who say, wait a minute, I took trigonometry and I think it's what helped get me into college, you know, or are we sure that higher ed is still going to accept our kids if we change these requirements? So we're dealing with an industry that was built for just such a different time that I have um, enormous appreciation for the educators I work with who are trying to reimagine everything they're doing. So I always have to start there. I think it's worth thinking about what's possible in the virtual time and not just what's more difficult because almost all of it is more difficult. I would say that the single thing we're helping educators do is to remember to start with deep and authentic relationships with young people and, and with families. And then to think about how do you use this time, like I said, to drive much more independent work, to drive young people getting more agency to drive their own learning, And then one of my big concerns, this goes along with sort of the collaboration piece, is there's a risk in virtual learning that kids only receive information and that they suddenly are producing a lot less work. So this is another tip I've given parents. If you see just lots of listening to lectures and watching videos about the topic, but your kid isn't producing a video, your kid isn't producing a writing assignment, that's where I would probably step in as a parent. Now, remember, I'm a meddling parent because I'm a teacher. I was a teacher long before I was ever a parent. But I worry, I would worry a lot about making sure that, that kids are producing as much work if, as they are consuming. I assume that goes along with the lines of even potentially changing the model. Uh, now, granted, producing is part of maybe the traditional model as far as papers are concerned, but you mentioned creating a video. In my mind, that seems something that would be a little bit more new and is a little bit more hands-on as opposed to learn the material, regurgitate it on a test, completely purge it out of your brain and move on to the next set of facts that you're going to forget after you do a test. Right, right. It's about how do we move much more of learning to um, critical thinking than just content you know, absorption, right? It's it's what do we think young people really need to be able to do in this volatile, complex world where all the information we need is at our fingertips. And it's really sort of the future belongs to the kids who know how to apply it, how to make connections that weren't there before, how to drive their own success. And then another big piece of that is kind of that tie of their social emotional wellness. It's also about how well we're equipping young people to have the self-awareness to kind of do their own self-regulation. You know, when you said, what do we ask adults? 
how many adults in the last six months have found themselves like, you know, out of regulation, snapping at your spouse, (laughs) having one more glass of wine than you should, stopping your workout regimen? Well, what makes us successful as adults is that we can recognize our mental state and intervene, but nobody ever really teaches young people how to do that. And so this is also a great time to say to young people, look, like you're going to learn a lot about yourself as a learner. Maybe you need to go for a run every morning or have a fidget toy during that one class you think is boring or make sure that you eat a healthy snack at three in the afternoon. Like there's a chance right now to, to really explain self-regulation and self-awareness to kids in a way that whether it's the teacher or the parent, like somebody's got to do it. You had me when you said fidget toy, because <laughs> that's that's me. <laughs> uh, I, I'm a constant fidgeter and need that for almost any meeting that I'm in, whether I like the material that's being gone over or not. Another question that came to mind, back to the lecture part of virtual learning, I've read suggestions about consolidating, if you will, lectures. And what I mean by that is if I'm learning something that a Yale professor has already recorded and is out there online, is any other teacher going to perform a lecture better than that? So should I just have my student watching something like this? And where I'm going with that, to your point about the interaction and then also the connection, could there be a, a common ground that yes, we do use technology in that way, but then the teacher becomes a facilitator afterwards to encourage interaction and encourage action from the material that's been learned. Do you see that as being uh, somewhat of a shifting role potentially as almost the, the teacher is overseeing other material that may not necessarily be taught directly by them? If we were in person right now, I'd be high-fiving you. Um, so this is loosely the, the term that gets thrown around, and it means a lot of things, but the term that gets thrown around for what you just described is called the flipped classroom. So it's the, the, the old idea was teacher stands at the front, spends their time lecturing at students, then students go home and have to work through the application of that material by themselves. And guess what? Like a third of them do well and two thirds of them struggle. The flipped model is if we can just get the best delivery of that content, whether to your point, it's a Yale uh, professor or it's the best video that can be produced that teaches that content or the best neighborhood teacher who's, you know, knocks it out of the park every time. And that video can be watched at home. Then instead, the time that's with teacher and student, whether that's in person or virtual, um, is spent so much more on the application and, and like dissecting that content and figuring out where kids have gaps for what they didn't get from the lecture. It's a much more productive strategy for most things. But this is one of those things where we've been trying to push this concept for most of a decade and not just us alone, lots of people that work in the innovation space in education. And we, until this year, couldn't quite get there at scale. And all of a sudden now we have droves of educators saying, hold on, it is a waste of my time to sit in front of the Zoom screen or the Google Meet screen and lecture. Why wouldn't I record that and then spend my time with young people in a totally different way? So all of a sudden we finally have had a 
demand producing event for something we've all been trying to work on for a long time. Another quick personal anecdote. I've gotten really into the Dave Ramsey world for financial coaching. So I've been deciding whether or not to do one of his financial peace university courses to lead one. And I was not sure how much did I need to learn for each step and then present. And their virtual model is exactly what we're describing. I, as a facilitator, don't have to read from slides, essentially. There's the videos to do that. And then what they want the facilitator to do is have a discussion with the group and go through your reactions and what their next steps are going to be. So it makes a lot of sense to me. And in fact, in my example, I read that and said, oh yeah, I can do that. That'll be a lot of fun. <laughs> that That is the fun part even. So if I'm a teacher, I'd be thrilled sort of skipping the one-way communication of telling people whatever the subject matter is and getting right to the interaction. I got to imagine in most cases, that's the fun part. Yeah. Now here's the interesting data point though. We've got to look at the research. So in all these MOOCs and all these big open online classes, you know, now you can get, you mentioned Yale, you can get the MIT content, the Harvard content. Those big online open access courses have a failure rate. And I don't mean failure like you're getting an F, but like you never made, you didn't finish of about 95%. So this is the interesting thing is that just doing the lecture side of the flipped classroom by itself, it doesn't even keep adults' attention. So we shouldn't expect it to keep young people's attention. The thing that makes it sticky is two things. Number one, some shared accountability that I feel like I'm doing this with a cohort or with a group of people who care whether or not I finish and the quality of the relationship I feel with my facilitator. So then now think about what do we need our teachers to be really good at? Exactly to your point, like you've got to be great at building the relationship with the people in your class, and you've got to be great at creating a sense of shared experience between them. So those aren't really things we've trained teachers how to do terribly well, either at the higher ed space or in K-12. Those will be the two, I think, uh, make it or break it skills for what we see teachers able to do this year. Makes sense to me based on what my experience is in the work world. So it seems like a lot of that should be able to apply in the world of education. Let's jump over a little bit to the parent situation, both again, currently what they're facing and all of the pressures as well as what parents should be looking for after we get through the pandemic. So you mentioned having that network of other adults to carry some of the burden of having their kids at home, certainly more than they were prior to the pandemic. What other strategies should parents be using right now to cope with what's going on? Yeah. So let me talk a little bit about the schedule. So do you remember back in March and April, like every education person I knew was throwing content at parents like, hey, here are the 27 things you should do to make this work. Well, one of them was make sure you have a schedule. So I watched families in March, April, and May like crush themselves under the tyranny of the schedule that they had created for themselves and their kids. And in, in like the first two weeks of March it, or second two weeks of March, maybe it worked pretty well. It was like, here's our, we will get dressed every day and here's the time we'll go for a walk and then we'll have this meal and then we'll do this kind of learning and then we'll do this kind of break. And then 
And then by April or May, all these parents I knew were like, oh my God, all I do all day is try to enforce this schedule. And let's be clear, I'm trying to do it while I'm also trying to work from home. Well, we missed a critical part of the schedule. It is true. Kids do well with the structure and routine of a schedule. Nobody remembered to tell parents that your kid has to have some ownership over the schedule. It's not you becoming like the bell and the whistle of the day. It's got to be a schedule that kids are learning how to create from them for themselves, reflecting on themselves, and then depending on their age, owning for themselves, right? So even with like a five or six-year-old, they can say, hey, so today I flexed that screen time from 40 minutes to 60 minutes. And man, was I grouchy. I know, mom, I ask for the 60 minutes of screen time, but I do better when we have a break in screen time at 40 minutes. I have seen a six-year-old do that. I know it is possible. <laughs> and and you've got to create a space where they feel ownership over that schedule. So that's, that's one where I've really been intervening. I'm watching these families like crush themselves. The third I've talked about a little bit, make sure we're encouraging as much independence as kids, at, at, depending on their age pushing them to what I call the edge of their independence. So I've talked a little bit about my own kids. I haven't mentioned my three-year-old. The best and most frustrating thing my family did this spring was support her while she learned how to do three things, fold laundry, make a sandwich, and feed the dog. Now, some people would say that's too much for a three-year-old. She's not abnormal. We got it done. She didn't have much else to do with school closed. And the act of trying and failing and trying again, I think is the best thing we did. Now, these lists of like, what's the edge of independence for a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, an eight an 18-year-old, they exist all over the internet. And sitting down with a kid and saying, hey, let's look at this list of things. What do you not know how to do? And how do we use those like boring hours in the afternoon or more time while we're all stuck at home together for you to learn and I'll help you how to do these like pretty critical life skills. So that's a huge one right now. Now the difference is they can't feel like chores and they've got to be things that kids feel like they chose and they have agency over. What about parents having to work with their employers? Do you have any tips for either conversations they should be having to work on flexibility or do you mainly just focus on assuming their nine to five is their nine to five and here's other options to be flexible outside of their workspace? Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've started talking about this with folks just in the last couple of weeks. It's not a thing I ever thought I would need to have a, a loud voice about, but I'm finding it useful. So I'm willing to do it. This certainly um, is speaking more to professional parents in the kinds of jobs where flexibility is an option. So I want to just say that for people that are doing really important, essential work right now in grocery stores and hospitals and shift work, um, I'm so grateful for them. And I have unfortunately like less help, I think, to offer about how you work with employers in that space. But in, in jobs where virtual work can happen, um, I am increasingly impressed by stances I'm seeing employers take. And the, the biggest thing is if your, you know, boss or whoever's in charge of your HR doesn't have young kids and doesn't have a real sense of what childcare costs, we've seen people just putting that number in front of their employer and people saying, oh, I had no idea. So when you learn as an employer that some of your best employees suddenly have a 
1200 $1,400 cost monthly that they didn't used to have, you start to say, oh, hold on a second. If I want great productivity out of you, I've got to either be willing to flex your schedule or I need to be willing to create a new temporary employment benefit where I'm going to defray some of those costs. And and you know, when I first started talking about this this summer, I had a lot of employers and folks in chambers of commerce say, no way. We have a spike in unemployment. I'm not going to add an additional benefit. Or people have said, aren't my employees who don't have kids going to feel like that's inequitable and unfair? And as this has gone on, people have realized that no, your employees who don't have kids are just going to be grateful that their colleagues can carry their weight and your best talent will be able to lean in more. Because right now, the only other benefit we're getting from the federal benefits is to support people who are deciding the best choices to work less. So I'm seeing employers really step up to this. It's slow. Um, but I also think this fall, we're going to see people drive um, a lot of attention to some pretty concerning emerging statistics about women in particular dropping out of the workforce. And I think it behooves us to be an employer who's on the front end of this versus the back end. That's a great point about just writing down the number for what monthly cost is for childcare, because I guess that is true. If you don't have kids, you may not have an idea. And right, as far as people opting to stay home and get out of the workforce, it's simple math problem in some cases, depending on what their salary is, it may not make sense. And we won't go down the rabbit hole of childcare versus uh, parents that are able to stay at home. There's plenty of literature for people to make what the best decision is for them. But for some people, it's an economics thing prior to what's gone on. And when those numbers shift, that might be the thing that causes them to opt to stay home and and be with their kids and do what's right for their family. What about the different types of schools? We focused a lot in our prior episode about the public school versus private school. And a lot of that is because it was one of my main comparisons, really wanting to start the year off face to face. Do you see any differences between public and private being able to adopt some of the concepts that you're talking about separate from COVID and then also how they're adapting to the challenges that we're seeing right now? Yeah. So I I will say at the outset, I am um, an ardent supporter of public education, but I am an ardent supporter of public education that is responsive and nimble. (laughs) And so I don't begrudge anybody having to make the choices they're having to make this year. I think the private school setting, now remember, the nature of private schools is they're very diverse. And so it's not fair to say that there's they have an easier time innovating or not, right? Some are choosing a more innovative curriculum, some are not. But I will say that when I've studied the different experience that private schools are designed around versus public schools, two things are true. Number one, your customers are paying customers. And so a private school is very often designed for family engagement because I want you to continue to buy what I'm selling. Whereas our public schools, they have a history um, that goes way back to, you know, Jeffersonian comments about the, the point of public education is to pull a few kids out of the rubbish. I mean, that's a direct quote. And 
certainly not kids because he didn't say kids, but really was talking about, you know, the public school system will save kids from their families. And so public schools really are, if they're achieving great family partnership and family engagement, they have redesigned for that. We sometimes use the language fortress school to say so many of our public school institutions were designed to kind of have their back to the family and their back to the community to create success no matter what is happening in the home. And that's a really big difference between the way that private schools are designed to work with families. So that's the first. The second has to do with relationships. So I mentioned before that so much of our public school design has to do with the industrial age. And it was designed for batching and in many ways, anonymity. You know, there's a reason we have 5,000 kid or 6,000 kid high schools in the traditional American high school. That's not something that's built for relationships. But when you look at the design of a private school, it's much more designed for relationships. And so it doesn't require a heroic teacher to squeeze relationships in between, you know, passing periods and after school tutoring. That comes from smaller class sizes. It comes from different ratios. It comes from um, less pressure on getting through a certain amount of content by a certain amount of time. And so educators feel a lot more freedom to build really authentic relationships with young people and then to drive learning from there. So those are the two biggest differences, I'd say, just in general, absent what's happening this year. I've heard loud and clear the class sizes on both sides of the fence from the people that I've talked to, the couple of private schools that we interacted with were definitely touting the smaller ratio between student and teacher. And on the public school side, not only with the physical amount of space that they have available or lack of in this case for the public schools, but also the total number of kids and acknowledging what you're saying as far as relationships are concerned. I'll also say that our interaction with the representatives from the private schools did feel more personal. To your point, they are trying to attract students because that's where they get their money, (laughs) their paying tuition. So it, it is a little bit different feel from that standpoint. But a little bit of a dig towards our public school representative where we would have ended up going when we went to ultimately disenroll my son, the email we got back literally just said, good luck. And that was it. Nothing else on there or anything. So we'll have an interesting comparison as the school year winds down and, you know, we figure out our next steps, but I'm going to assume that it's a symptom of what you were just talking about as far as the, what public schools are being asked to do compared to what private schools are set up to do. And one other acknowledgement, I think you were getting at this as well, of the diversity of private schools. Obviously, there's a wide range of types of private schools. There are ones that are connected to churches. There are other that, that are like college preparatory and so on and so forth. So I think that probably also varies in the experience that people are getting. But what we noticed as one of the primary themes for all of them was that smaller class size and getting some more one-on-one time with their teachers. So that does seem to be something that is worth pursuing, I guess, on the public school side. The data point I'll be looking at that I'm really interested in is families who thought they would be public school families who this year chose private school in order to get an in-person experience. 
I'm so interested to see if that sticks. Do they come back? Do they stay? Do they stay for a few years, but then come back to public school? You know, I'm really curious in about a year to 18 months to follow those those data trends. Goes without saying, so am I, <laughs> because I'm in the beginning stages of that and would be very curious to know what the total numbers are, even of families that opted to make the change that we did and then what they ultimately end up doing after we get on the backside of the pandemic. It it will be very interesting to see how that all plays out. Uh, And let's conclude with some future looking statements here. What do you think will be permanent in the adjustments that have gone on? Well, none of our kids are going to wear shoes anymore. That's that may be true forever. The shoe policy has to go. Um, (laughs) No, in all seriousness, it may really be too soon to know. What I'm I'm starting to follow, though, is the longer-term impacts on this generation of young people in how they choose to pursue work and in how they choose to live their lives, right? So they are getting, in many cases, a very up-close view of the work we're all doing from home. And so, you know, when my niece is in my living room and I've talked to her about the importance of communication skills... And she hears me negotiate differently on one kind of conference call than another. Well, now actually, she actually pays attention when I talk about why communication skills matter for her and her profession. So, and, and her, her professional future, rather. So, I just think there's this whole generation of kids that are going to have really interesting decisions to make and may pursue the world of work in a really different way. So, that's, it's too soon to know, but that's super interesting to me in particular because. This generation, Gen Z, you know, they already spike higher on some really important skills. They spike higher, to your previous point, on financial responsibility. They tend to spike higher than two generations before them on compassion and on some measures of curiosity. So I think we're going to have a really interesting generation who, if we can scaffold some resilience and some sense-making for them out of this moment, can go on to be a generation that gives us a lot of hope. Now, on the school side, this is the biggest disruption K-12 has ever seen. And so my favorite superintendent, who I work with closely, said, shame on us if we come out of this the same way we went in. And he was particularly talking about student engagement. We know that there have been kids who've been bored and pretty checked out in our in-person classrooms for a long time. And now we're just seeing it more because they don't log in. So my greatest hope is that on the school side, we are going to drive a revolution in much more relevant, engaging learning experiences out of this. Um, it just may be a little clunky to get us from here to there. This is kind of a unrelated to what we've been talking about so far, but do you see us ever getting away from the summer break model of school? <laughs> the agricultural model? Um, right. <laughs> so I always joke, you know, I live in a city, I don't ever see any kids like pulling up crops in July and August. Um, and yet we still have an agrarian calendar. You know, many districts have experimented with more of a year round calendar. And it's so the sources of pushback are very, very interesting. They tend to come from affluent parents who want to go on longer vacations, but they also sort of come from, I think, an employer pressure where 
employers who are fairly understanding of having kids, they get that summer vacation is in July and you might get less, less productivity in the two weeks around a winter break. A whole community has to shift to those kind of online expectations. Uh, I'm sorry, online, those year round expectations before we can get there. And we've seen more people try to go there and then come back from it instead of having it be sticky. Yeah, I need to talk to those people that want to have their long vacations over the summer. Don't they realize that traveling is way cheaper when you go not in the <laughs> summer? They should just change their perspective a little bit and they'll, they'll definitely want to go for year round. Right. Well, and there's, there's plenty of parts of the world where July and August aren't necessarily the times you want to be there either. Right. So I'm on, I share this interest with you for sure. You know, we also have a, we have a number of school districts, almost, gosh, at least at last count, over 80 school districts in Colorado who've gone to a four day week instead of a five-day week. And that is very interesting to watch to see if that it becomes more of a trend. It, it tends to happen because it's a, good, it's a good teacher recruiting strategy in a state where we tend to underfund education and underpay our teachers. But I've seen some suggestion that more districts will go to a four-day week and then a slightly longer year in response to this year. So we might, we might get there. We'll see. This goes back to comparing the adult world to the educational world for students. We're seeing more and more reports of employers trying the four-day work week to prevent burnout and so on. And hey, so far, what I've read has been very positive. So why wouldn't it work for students as well to potentially prevent some burnout? And if they do extend, I think that's one of the other uh, knocks to summer break is there's a certain amount of relearning that has to be done is my understanding when you get into that next grade. So if you close that gap, at least some amount, hopefully you're preventing some of that learning loss. I'm sure there's a more institutional term than what I just used, but you've got it. We call it the summer slide. Um, And this year people have been calling it the COVID slide, uh, trying to figure out when we can get to the place of academic measurement how much did kids lose between March and August or September this year? Well, let me hit you with one more somewhat outside of the box that has creeped up in the news is the micro schools and then the learning pods. What's your perspective on those? Do you think that they have legs and will be something that remain after we're through the pandemic? Yeah. So people mean a number of different things when they use the term learning pod. So you might be in a learning pod, but you're still enrolled in your public school. And you're just coming together as a pod for childcare that might be provided by parents on a rotational basis or somebody you've hired. So that's one kind of pod. Then there's a different kind of pod where you're not enrolling in your public school and you're doing almost a homeschool pod. And actually, those have been around for a long time. They're just becoming a bit more prevalent this year, to your point. It's so interesting because districts have taken, a, in some cases, a really troubling response to this and, and discouraging it because they certainly have reason to have concerns about either equity or the budget implications, et cetera. I think families think this is going to be easier than it is because you're essentially entering into a bit of an employment relationship with your friends and neighbors. Um, Whether you're employing somebody or not, you're kind of managing this, this new kind of entity and this new relationship together. I'm paying a lot of attention. First of all, I will say my own kids are in a pod. So we've got this happening in our basement as we speak. I'm trying to study it. But I'm also paying attention to how much these even persist through 
this semester because I think it's a little harder to be in those kind of family to family relationships than people have estimated it might be. Yeah, I could definitely see that becoming a little bit of a challenge as far as getting too familiar with your friends and neighbors, depending on how your pod gets set up. But on the other side, from the business aspect, I wonder what this will do for teacher resources. Again, going back to one of the primary debates among teachers who some seem to be okay with face-to-face, some are adamant they do not feel safe at all being in the school. Will some of these pods be able to pick off, if you will, the teachers that they really like and say, you know what? The cost of bringing you here for a six-figure salary is no more than I would be paying to go to a private school. And you're now you're only teaching six or eight kids. So why wouldn't I go ahead and do that? Oh, yeah. This is definitely happening. And I'll say, you know, I differ from some of my more traditional education friends who I think are just see this as a bad thing. I think it's going to create some some positive competitive demand inside the teaching workforce. You know, I left teaching for business school and had plenty of corporate interviews where people said like, oh, but you you were just a teacher. Um, and what they meant was we'd never given people a way to differentiate a great teacher from a less great teacher. And if you're a terrific teacher who suddenly can draw down nearly twice your salary, you know, you've been underpaid a long time. I don't begrudge teachers who are saying there's now a different way to participate in our profession and our industry. And if you can make it work, I don't know, more power to you. But that's the former underpaid teacher in me probably that that has that view. Well, speaking of the more power to you, I, I appreciate you being on the show. And I think we've gone through a lot of helpful information as parents and teachers alike continue to figure out what they can be doing in this unknown time. Before I let you go, Rebecca, do you want to go ahead and give folks your contact info, uh, if they can find you on social media, and then any either events or promotions that you want to let folks know about? Sure. So I am on Twitter at Reb Holmes, R-E-B as in boy, H-O-L-M-E-S-E-D-U because basically education is the only thing I continue to know much about and talk about. Um, And Colorado Education Initiative is coloradoedinitiative.org. And if you're looking for similar organizations in your state, we can connect you to the similar kind of third-party intermediaries who are driving innovation agendas. The last thing I'd say to parents is just to remember to be honest with your kids in age-appropriate ways right now. Kids are intuitive, and they know when we're faking our confidence in this moment. It's much better to just meet them where they are and and let them know that you're doing the best you can and that you want them as partners in the decisions that you're making for their lives. Very good. Well, of course, I will put all of your information into the show notes so people can easily find you. And again, Rebecca, I appreciate you joining the show today and we'll be in touch. Thank you so much for your time. This is a fun conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit SuburbanFolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to SuburbanFolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. 
Go to ringmedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G media.com.